You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner. His last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum. Eleven lectures, translated by Matthew Barton. This is the last lecture in this series. Lecture 11, entitled How Do We Gain Knowledge of the Supersensible World? Given in Paris on the 26th of May, 1924. Anyone today who inwardly aspires to knowledge of the supersensible world is most often referred to methods and results that originated in ancient times. If we then delve a little deeper, we discover what were at an earlier phase of humanity's evolution called the mysteries, centers which firstly cultivated religious life and rituals, these being infused by the spiritual principle, and secondly, which engaged in what we today would call scientific inquiry. The spiritual principle infused and imbued this other form of human apprehension, too. And a third aspect expressed in these mysteries was the artistic element. On the one hand, then, what imbued religion, ritual, and science was made manifest at these centers to direct, tangible apprehension. And on the other, what imbued art was likewise embodied, made manifest, Basically, those today who seek the supersensible are still living from these things from ancient times as tradition has preserved them. In my lecture today, I do not wish to speak of these ancient traditions, nor of the ancient mysteries. I want to speak rather of the potential for a new mystery life, the possibility of a new path toward supersensible worlds, whose meaning and underlying conception can be equal to the standards nowadays set for scientific knowledge, based on the huge advances in scientific thinking in the modern era. If we look inward, we find our interiority to be actively constituted of thinking, feeling, and will. Of these soul activities, only thinking is, if it is healthy, independent of our physicality. If we are able to devote ourselves fully and inwardly to the character of thinking, we will find that this thinking can only supply us with independent, logical laws because healthy thinking is naturally independent of our corporeality. Only if we start to think in pathological ways, if some kind of morbidity enters our thinking, does it become dependent on bodily processes. But what does this mean? It means nothing less than this, that as long as thinking is healthy, it keeps itself separate from the body, and it only submerges itself in the body, is only absorbed into the unconscious if it becomes unhealthy. The same is not true of our feeling, nor of our will. In its natural, normal condition, Our feeling submerges itself in the body and is scarcely conscious to us, like anything dreamlike. It subsists entirely in our corporeality. 
The same is true of will. In ordinary life, we remain unaware of what actually occurs in will processes because they are deeply immersed in our body. If we now try to acquire higher knowledge, we must develop human capacities that are just as independent of corporeality as our ordinary thinking, but which are also able to perceive worlds higher than those available to ordinary thinking. In our present state of evolution, this thinking is only capable of perceiving and anatomizing the physical sense world. In the ancient mysteries, this emancipation of spiritual faculties from the body was facilitated by outward means. Let us consider for a moment the effect on our soul of, say, a fleeting sound, noise or tone that frightens us. This sudden impression leaves no time for us to immerse in our bodily nature the feelings that occur in the soul. And if fright, fear, anxiety follow in quick succession, the soul element is retained outside of the body. The whole means used in the ancient mysteries involved freeing the soul from the body through this kind of shock. Terror, highly dramatic occurrences that lead the soul to a pinnacle and then let it fall were geared to giving a person experiences in which soul life is sustained outside of the body and does not immerse itself in it. When a person came back to themselves after such occurrences, they recognized that they had been given insights into a world otherwise closed to them, a world they called supersensible. These outward means, which largely assumed a ritual form in the ancient mysteries, are no longer appropriate for modern humanity. They also depended on isolating and secluding those who were initiated into higher knowledge. The mysteries were strictly out of bounds for most, strictly organized and overseen by wise priests who were able to establish external means that enabled those chosen over many years to accustom their soul to achieving independence from the body and with this independence of soul to enter the world of spirit. People today would have no trust or confidence in anyone who had to seek a path to the spiritual world by this means. And this is because these methods required strict seclusion of the spiritual seeker from the world. In ancient times, trust was only invested in spiritual people if they secluded themselves from the rest of humanity, whereas today we only trust seekers if they stand fully in life, if nothing in the full reality and immediacy of life is foreign to them. And for this reason our modern era needs, and for now will go on needing, methods to pursue the path into the spiritual world which are more inward paths of the soul. In pursuing such methods we must remain independent of external measures, external effects to advance us. I want to describe to you methods of accessing the world of spirit that are very quietly effective within the soul and yet lead to knowledge of the spiritual world, as surely as the methods that were used for initiation in the ancient mysteries. In my book, titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, whose French translation is entitled Initiation, uh, 
uh, apologize for my French effort there, readers aside, end of readers aside. I described modern methods of initiation. This evening I would like to speak of these initiation methods in general terms. A particular inner engagement with our world of thoughts, our powers of thought, is required to make a beginning on the path of perception of spiritual worlds. In ordinary life we give ourselves up to the outer world or to the thoughts that rise up in us from within. And whatever relative activity we succeed in developing in this ordinary mind, in general our thinking is nevertheless passive, surrendered either to the sensory world or the inner world of soul. In fact, modern people actually place great importance on retaining this passivity of thinking, since they fear that if they shape their thoughts arbitrarily out of themselves, they will find themselves in an imaginary realm. This whole approach to thinking has to change if we are to enter the supersensible realm. We have to activate our thinking. In line with old customs, I have called this activation of thinking meditation. Quite contrary to the surrendering of ourselves to something objective in our thinking, it involves us placing at the center of our mind, through the inner power of our soul life, a content of thought that can easily be surveyed and that is as simple as possible. Focusing on this exclusively for a while, without any distraction, we turn our whole soul's attention to this single inner content. In dwelling actively with our whole soul upon an inner content, something happens with our soul faculties that otherwise occurs in the physical body if, say, we keep using a particular set of muscles to accomplish a specific kind of work. The muscles strengthen. In the same way, our powers of soul strengthen inwardly if the soul's activity is repeatedly focused upon a content. The content of thinking must be easy to survey since it should contain nothing that might come from the unconscious. We must dwell upon this inner content in a, as fully conscious reflection as we can manage. It is not good, therefore, to take something complex, something perhaps that is drawn from our memory, reminiscences that, as old soul experiences, have either a rational or feeling connection with the content in question. It is best, therefore, to find the meditation content in one of two ways. We can, say, take a book we have never read before, whose content is entirely unknown to us. We open it at random and read a sentence that is of no particular interest to us. Yet we take this sentence and place it at the forefront of our mind and ponder it. For a long time we focus our whole soul upon this content. But even better than this is if we have sufficient trust in someone who has real knowledge of these things. We can go to them and ask them for an inner content of the kind described. Such a person, if they are a spiritual investigator already, will be practiced in knowing after a glance at us what spiritual content would be best for our meditation. If we then take an easily surveyed content that is wholly present in our conscious mind, and concentrate upon it, dwell upon it in very meditative concentration, our thinking will gradually be entirely transformed. It will shed all abstraction, all coldness. Thinking becomes very pictorial. We gain the ability to think in images that are rich and vivid, even full of color.
images that gradually become like vivid dream pictures, yet have a quite different soul character, enter our conscious mind, and we experience something that we have never before consciously experienced. The ability to think with as clear a presence of mind as the most clear-headed logician or mathematician can, though not thinking in terms of natural laws, but in pictures whose origin we are initially unaware of. Let us call this first level of knowledge of the supersensible, in quotes, imaginative perception. We need to develop these capacities if we wish to enter the first sphere of the supersensible world. If we continue with such exercises for long enough, depending on the individual, it may take years or perhaps only months, we can at last succeed in fully developing a pictorial consciousness, thinking in pictures in the same way as one otherwise thinks in abstract thoughts in the ordinary mind. We think, not dream, in these pictures. Having advanced far enough with this pictorial thinking, we will be directly conscious of the fact that this pictorial thinking does not submerge itself in the body, but is free and independent of it. We now feel ourselves to exist in this independent picture thinking. We live in it fully. We live in it as we otherwise live in our physical body. And as we feel ourselves within our physical body, with all our bodily feelings, with both the pain and well-being that issues from it and is registered by the soul, so now we feel ourselves to be living in a finer second nature. We have detached this second person in us from the physical body and can now say out of inner experience, directly out of living experience, that we no longer feel ourselves only within the physical body. Now we experience our human nature also in an etheric body, in a body of subtler substantiality. It becomes lived experience for us that a second human being is contained within the first. Just as we can perceive the physical world through the physical body's physical sense organs, colors through the eyes, tones through the ears, and so on, feeling ourselves within the etheric body, which is as structured and organized as the physical body, and knowing this second nature of ours through it, we come to perceive a new world to which the physical body alone cannot penetrate. The first new world we perceive is that of our own present earthly life, in a mighty tableau that unfolds majestically before us. Everything that has occurred in life and chronological sequence stands before us now in its simultaneity, like a panorama. We survey everything in our life, from the present moment backward to our birth, in retrospect. In the same way that things stand beside each other in space, so now in this retrospective tableau, an experience that we had when we were eight years old, say, is present simultaneously with other things that we experienced when we were, for instance, twenty or fifty. It is as if time becomes space. And we learn to distinguish precisely between ordinary memory and what we now behold in tangible images in a majestic panorama of our whole life. Ordinary memory, which we draw forth from our being, in isolated thoughts, ideas, pictures, is weak and pale by comparison. 
What we now survey as it unfolds before us is full, rich, vividly colorful, if I can put it like that. Yet everything also appears to us as outward things appear. From this panoramic view, which occupies a somewhat extended moment, we know how our life appears to the inner gaze, and it becomes apparent to us that a spirit soul holds sway within us at every moment of our earthly existence since birth, or rather, since conception. This spirit soul compresses itself into forces of growth, forces of nutrition, into all activity holding sway in our physical body. But, ultimately, what we perceive here, having ascended to the first stage of supersensible perception, is a spiritual principle. At the same time, however, we discern not only our own etheric body, but the etheric world that surrounds us, to which our etheric body belongs. We discern how differently we relate to this etheric world, which exists as definitely as the physical, from how we relate to the physical world. In the physical world, things are present. I am present. I speak of physical things as being strictly separate from me and can point to them. But I am connected to the etheric world through my etheric body in the same way that a part of my own organism is related to the whole organism. And just as a part of me, my finger, say, can be distinguished from my whole body, so my etheric body, though it can be distinguished from the etheric universe, nevertheless forms a part of it. We are much more a unity with the world that stands behind the physical world than the physical world is a unity with the physical world. That is the first level of the supersensible world, and it is also the first supersensible realm we reach on our journey toward supersensible knowledge. At the level of supersensible knowledge that I have so far described, we do not gain more than an insight into this aspect of human nature that develops from birth to death as a unity that remains constant while also transforming throughout our life by contrast to the separate substances that we assimilate and expel so that as physical beings we continually renew ourselves. The etheric body remains present as a unity from birth to death. Now if we wish to advance further than this first level, a second stage of perception must be developed within the soul. Having at the first stage activated and invigorated our thinking, so that we comprehend and encompass ourselves in our etheric body, to attain the second stage of knowledge, we must now eradicate once more from consciousness everything that we gain in this way through strengthened thinking. Having very actively introduced a conscious content into our soul by concentrating on it with all our power, we must now let go of it again. You know what happens when we must rid ourselves of our usual soul content, the world supplied to us through our senses. We fall asleep. Gradually we lapse into a numbness of soul. This must not happen here and does not happen. Yes, indeed, it is difficult to rid ourselves again of a soul content that we have first exerted all our powers to consciously invoke. It is harder to do so in this case than with the contents of the ordinary mind. 
But if we succeed in expelling this content, something occurs that never otherwise happens. Our mind becomes completely empty. In the vivid experience of our own etheric body that we have first brought about, we become able to, as it were, abstract, look away from the whole sense world and from all ordinary thinking. We live then in a higher region. But if we now rid ourselves again of this higher region, erase this tableau of our own life, our consciousness becomes empty, and we find ourselves in a state that is significant for all higher knowledge, that of mere wakefulness, without inner content. We direct a strengthened, invigorated consciousness out into the emptiness of the world. We do not fall asleep as we do this, but remain wakeful. But if for a moment we face nothing but the void, this does not last long. Having maintained mere wakefulness in our consciousness, really empty consciousness, the world of spirit penetrates us. This is not our etheric body, nor anything that bears an affinity with it, but a spiritual world that is at first very far off. The real world of spirit penetrates our merely wakeful and empty consciousness, though this empty mind and wakefulness has to be acquired through long-practiced soul exercises that I have been able to describe only in general. You see, this suppression of all content does not succeed at the first try, but must be repeatedly practiced. For some it will again take years, while for others, if they have the right predisposition, which is a matter of destiny, it may take only months until they succeed in keeping the mind empty without falling asleep, so that the world of spirit can enter them. Of course, it might be said that this kind of experience of approaching the world of spirit could be mere suggestion, auto-suggestion. How, you may ask, can we distinguish such suggestion from what the spiritual investigator, the initiate, calls a real world of spirit? Only life itself enables us to make this distinction. Just as life itself will teach us the difference between the idea of red-hot iron and iron that actually burns you, one experiences realities in the world of spirit that stream into the empty mind. You simply know the difference between a spiritual reality and mere auto-suggestion, in the same way that you can tell the difference between a red-hot piece of iron or just the mental image of it. In the book I referred to, I called this second stage of supersensible knowledge by an old term, in quotes, inspired knowledge. Please don't take offense at the term. We need a terminology of some kind for these things. When we reach the stage of inspired knowledge, we experience ourselves, in a sense, as inhabiting a third aspect of our being. First we have the physical person, then the etheric person. Now we experience ourselves as inhabiting a third entity. But as we do so, we experience ourselves not only as independent of our body, as is true in strengthened imaginative thinking, but we find ourselves entirely outside the body. We have attained the state that we can call living in the spirit outside of the physical body. Here we are also capable of departing from the etheric body too, 
that is, in the same way we eradicated all content, including all imaginative content, to achieve empty consciousness, so we also eradicate this life tableau that we first achieved, as I described. This means that we submerge what we possess in earthly life in the unconscious and live outside of our physical and etheric existence. Having achieved this, our retrospective gaze no longer extends back only to birth or conception, but further back into the past. We gaze into a world of spirit in which we lived as spirit soul before we descended to the physical world. We behold ourselves as living and acting in this spiritual world, just as we behold ourselves as physical human beings in the physical world. We come to discern how what nature develops as the physical germ of our being must connect and unite with what descends from worlds of spirit, for we can now ourselves behold this. And having gained this knowledge, in the course of which we depart entirely from our physical and etheric body, then we find as we return into our own physical and etheric body, that is, as the moment of our vision of the world of spirit ceases, that our soul spiritual life on earth is a reflection, an image, of what we were as spirit soul before we descended to the earth. And as we come back into our body, into the physical and etheric body, we master what I will call a configured, individualized power of perception or vision. Now, whereas we experience outside of our physical and etheric body a more general spiritual world, which we pass through in pre-earthly existence, on returning to our physical and etheric body, not submerging ourselves in it, but if you like tarrying or dwelling there, we learn to distinguish between the spirit beings of a higher world with whom we were united before we descended to earthly life, in the same way that we distinguish here between different human individuals. We learn to recognize beings who never descend to earth, never assume a physical body, divine beings of spirit. We are the co-inhabitants of the world of spirit with them before we descend to this earth. And precisely through being able to move in our spirit soul alternately between being outside and inside our body, we also learn to recognize that among these higher spirit soul beings with whom we dwelt before we descended to earth are human souls who are waiting to descend to the earth to experience it at a later time than we have experienced it. Thus, through this stage of inspired knowledge, we come to recognize a part of the eternal nature of the human being to which very little heed is given in our temporal consciousness, even by religious people. Our modern era does not like to consider or contemplate pre-earthly existence. People do have an interest in thinking about what lies after death, even if only as a matter of faith or tradition, since this is something still to come. But since they are alive already, they do not feel any particular need to reflect on pre-birth existence. They are here, after all. But they are interested in whether they will continue to exist. The second aspect of eternity, immortality, 
is of egoistic interest to them. In modern parlance, we don't even have a word for the other half of eternity, for pre-earthly existence, which extends as infinitely far back into the past as immortality extends forward. You see, in reality, we only come to discern the external aspects of human life if we can, once again, employ terms which ancient languages possessed for eternity. They spoke of, in quotes, unbornhood, as much as of immortality. Modern initiation science recomposes the eternity of human nature from both unbornhood and immortality together. However, unbornhood is more intrinsic to real knowledge than to egoism. As far as immortality is concerned, people can maintain mere belief. But unbornhood, the certainty that my being existed spiritually before my physical body ever took shape, is something I only come to recognize if I am able to behold the unborn aspect of myself and not only the immortal aspect, which we will discuss in the last part of this lecture. If in this way we have stepped outside our physical and etheric body, and feel ourselves to be amongst spirit beings, as we previously felt ourselves to be amongst physical beings and things in the physical body, nevertheless we still know ourselves as a human being, as this specific individuality, this I, capital. And in a sense we need only embark on the journey back in time to the world we pass through before this present life on earth. But when we thus feel ourselves within a world of spirit and outside our physical and etheric body, and if we then look downward to the world of stars, the stars no longer appear to us as stars, but as worlds where higher or also lower beings dwell. Wherever our physical eyes would discern a star, we then perceive a cosmic sphere of other entities. If we now feel ourselves to be within a spirit world in the world of stars, as we otherwise feel ourselves to be on earth in our physical body, we can speak of the astral body just as we spoke of the etheric body at the first stage of supersensible perception, because we now dwell within the spiritual nature of the world of stars. If we desire to progress further than this, then besides imagination, and a consciousness emptied of content, we must add a third capacity of perception, one that the modern mind very rarely regards as a faculty of knowledge. This capacity does play the greatest conceivable role in human life, but no right is assigned it to figure in knowledge. I am speaking of the human power of love, the love that leads people together with others so that we come close to those we love through the physical body or the soul or spirit incarnated in the physical body. By further developing this power of love such that we can extend it into the experience of the etheric body firstly, but then also into the experience of the astral body, eventually we can go beyond discerning and experiencing our physical body. Gradually, we can intensify love to the point where we not only see other beings, but ourselves being now spirit, we can enter into relationship with them 
in the same way that we enter into relationship with physically embodied people on the earth. Intuition enables us to communicate with spirit beings, just as physical capacities enable us to interact and communicate with physical people on the earth. If we enhance our capacity of love to such a degree that the spiritual becomes objective for us, in the same way that the sense world is objective for us in the physical world, then not only looking back into our pre-earthly spiritual existence, we can also look back into former lives on earth. It becomes a reality for us that human life unfolds in forms of existence between birth and death, and then between death and a new birth, and then again between birth and death and once more between death and rebirth, that we live successive earthly lives and in successive periods of purely spiritual existence. Thus we learn to look back upon former earthly lives and can perceive our present life as the recapitulation of these former lives. Yet no one succeeds in beholding what they were, how they were, or that they even existed at all in a former life, unless they succeed in developing the capacity of love to the point where they can regard or confront themselves as they would another being. For this our love-infused capacities of knowledge must be hugely different from ordinary capacities, so that we can behold our former periods of existence upon earth as we would regard the existence of another person in the present. If we ascend to this level, which I have called that of intuition, of true intuition, we can behold ourselves in recurring lives on earth as spiritually active beings who stand before our eye of spirit, E-Y-E. Only then do we exist fully outside the life of our body, and if we experience this, then we know the nature of death. Death now stands before us as the outward, objective realization of what we ourselves have accomplished in knowledge and perception. Just as we laid aside our physical and etheric body in the cultivation of higher knowledge, so we can recognize now that at death we merely lay aside the physical and etheric body and that we then pass through the gate of death into a world of spirit. Belief becomes knowledge. Opinion becomes true perception. Thus what we otherwise call immortality becomes for us certain, exact, tangible knowledge. We behold the immortality of our own human existence, the entry of this, our human being, into a life after death in the same way that we also behold a pre-birth life in the spirit, a pre-earthly life. But we also look upon the interweaving of relationships between people in physical earth life, family relationships, relationships of love and friendship. We behold all this. Just as our physical corporeality is shed at death and the soul ascends into a world of spirit, so everything physical in our earthly friendships and loving relationships falls away to be replaced by an ensouled and all the more inward community when the people whose destiny leads them together here on earth have passed through the gate of death and find each other there again among higher beings. 
Modern initiation can only show the nature of the path whereby things that are otherwise matters of mere belief can actually be perceived, becoming assured knowledge of immortality as the other aspect of eternity. Thus, we rise through imaginative knowledge to sight of what lives between birth and death, and in gaining this perception we ascend at the same time to our etheric body. Inspired knowledge leads us to our astral body, so that we then enter the world we pass through before we were born, and which we will enter again after death. In the astral body we become acquainted with the pre-earthly and post-mortem life-sphere of human existence. Then, in ascending to intuitive knowledge, we come to know the fourth aspect of the human being, the true eternal I, capital, that passes from one earthly life to another and assumes purely spiritual forms of existence between each of these lives. In conclusion, having outlined this path of modern initiation in general terms at least, allow me to say this. Ancient knowledge, achieved in the way I described at the outset through outward rituals and other methods, was more instinctive and dreamlike in nature, and human convictions about the spiritual, supersensible realm have remained with us in the form of traditions that once emerged from this ancient instinctive knowledge. Today, though, we can already sense that many people feel and urge a deep longing to rediscover paths toward spiritual worlds without being aware of this themselves. There are as yet only a few who know this consciously, But if we are able to see such things, we can see how numerous are those who in their subconscious mind yearn for mystery knowledge because they wish to find the path again into supersensible worlds. The Gertianum, as we called it, in northwest Switzerland, was a very modest beginning in creating a mystery center to help people find a modern conscious path into the supersensible realm contrasting with the more instinctive path of ancient times. Enemies have robbed us of this mystery center, destroying it a little while ago by arson. These things, too, have their eternal aspect. The physical fire robbed us of the physical building, the Gertianum, where we had been cultivating the spiritual science I have briefly described to you. But there is also such a thing as spiritual fire, It does not burn down physical edifices, but will continually re-engender them. Quietly, with less noise and tumult than in the ancient mysteries, pupils of spiritual wisdom in the new mysteries will come together and in turn bring humanity the knowledge so necessary to it of the eternal realities of human existence and of the world. This knowledge is needed for our thinking, feeling, and will, so as to gain inward clarity and live harmoniously, and thus also find strength and security in outward life. People need connection with the spiritual world, and the longing will increasingly awaken in human souls, a longing born from humankind's eternal search for the spiritual, to have such a place as the spiritual school in Dornach, on the northwestern borders of Switzerland. This quest 
for the spiritual slumbered for the short span of a few centuries, a period that brought us the outward magnificence of science. But now, once again, the human being stands at the gate, opening on the supersensible, and is knocking at it, since natural science alone cannot further advance the human soul. Only modern mysteries will quench the thirst that lives consciously in a few, but unconsciously in a great portion of humanity. If we have true intentions toward the world of spirit, we will behold the human will for new mysteries that is quite assuredly coming to birth. For spirituality will only return to humankind if new mysteries arise in which people can discover the spirit in a more conscious, light-filled way than was true in the ancient mysteries. Through such mysteries they can be led back in a more developed, more perfect way to the divine world of spirit, and thus to the very source of their full humanity. The end of Lecture 11 and the end of Collected Works, Volume 84 by Rudolf Steiner. His last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, 11 public lectures given in Basel, 9 April 1923, Dornach, 14, 15, 20-22, April 1923, Prague, 27 and 30, April 1923, Vienna, 26 and 29, September 1923, and Paris, 26th of May 1924, translated by Matthew Barton.